0: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Wonderfully encouraging prayer. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Thank you for being here today. If you would, please get out your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. If uh, there are any parents with kids up through fifth grade and you'd like for them to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now out in the back, feel free to go that direction. Uh, If you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one. We're gonna read a lot of verses today, so I would encourage you to follow along so you could grab that blue Bible in the front, uh, underneath the seat in front of you and turn to uh, page 28, I think, is where we're at this morning. Uh, If you're new with us, thank you for coming. Welcome to this church family called Church on Mill. Uh, We believe here that uh, God speaks through his word. And so every Sunday when we get together, as you've already seen, we we sing Scripture, we read Scripture, uh, we pray about what the Scriptures say, and then we sit under God's Word being preached. We are uh, working our way through the second book in the Bible, a book called Exodus. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God made a, a promise, a, a covenant, with a man named Abram, and He told him that he would multiply a new people group through his descendants, and he would put them in a land that the land would be called Israel, and that through them, all the world, all the nations would be blessed. When we come to the second book in the Bible, part of those promises have been fulfilled and others have not. The people have multiplied. But Far from being a display of the glory of God living in the land of Israel, they are instead trapped in Egypt, where they are functioning as slaves, obeying and following Pharaoh instead of living in Israel under their God. And so that raises a whole host of questions. Is God able to keep his promises? Is he trustworthy? Is he good? Can he be depended on? Is a covenant with God worth anything? Can this God be known? And is he worth knowing? These are the issues we're dealing with when we study this book of Exodus. This morning we reach, in, in terms of the most famous sections of the book, probably the penultimate set of chapters namely those covering the plagues. And because the story is so uh, magnificent and the themes are so clear, if you hear all 10 of them at one time, I'm going to do something I've only done one other time. It was an hour and a half ago. (laughs) And that is read the entire thing. I don't mean I've never read read it and (laughs) realizing that's not coming out the way I intended. Publicly, I'm going to read four and a half chapters straight, just all the way through. It's going to take half the time that I normally am preaching. And my reason for that is, I think the story just stands on its own. And so I want to, I want to read it, and I'll ask for your grace and mercy. I'll make some mistakes, I'm sure. Uh, but as I read, would you follow along? And would you remember that, The Scriptures are not just that God spoke them into existence, but that as we read, they are God speaking. And so God will be talking to us. What does He want to say to you today? What does He want to say to us? Listen closely. And as I read and God speaks, would you in particular notice the repetition in the story. Because those are the places where we can especially see emphasis. We'll be hearing nine of the 10 plagues in their entirety, and then we'll hear the 10th sort of threatened or promised. And then Friday night, we'll come back together and Lord willing, we'll hear the unfolding of that 10th plague. Now, I'm going to sit like you Um, and we'll start in chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, The Lord... The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile, as Tad would say, stank. So the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart, And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water from the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs, The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and in your bedroom and on your bed. Can you imagine? And in the houses of your servants and your people and in your ovens and your kneading bowls, the frogs will come up on you and you and your people and your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools. Make frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand in the waters over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing. By their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. <laughs> Moses said, be it as you say that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, in the courtyards, the fields. They gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses say to Aaron stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning And present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out of the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came a great swarm of flies in the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to the Lord within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians, therefore, before their eyes, they will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey in the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, behold, I am going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord and the Lord did as Moses asked Removing the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people, not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold... The hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that is in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flock. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel will die. The Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow, the Lord will do this thing in the land. The next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but no one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Pharaoh sent and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people go. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the side of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in the sores of man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took silt from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it in the air, it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came on the magicians and on the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, on your servants, on your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, sin, get your livestock and all that you have in the field safe into shelter. For every man and beast that's in the field is not brought home, will die when the hail falls on them. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail. Fire ran down from the earth. The Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and said to them, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. There's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. Thunder will cease. There'll be no more hail. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord. Flax and barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Amen. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord. The thunder and hail ceased, the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know. I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, "Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews: How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. They shall cover the face. <laughs> I said flace. They shall cover the face of the land, so that no one." May see the land. They shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants, the Egyptians, as neither your father nor your grandfather have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. He said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. Which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and old. We will go with our sons and daughters, flocks, herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to him, the Lord be with you. If I ever let you and your little ones go, look. You have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. That's what you are asking. They were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the field, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched his staff over the land. Of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all the day and all the night. When it was morning the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came over all the land of Egypt, and settled over the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had never been before, and never will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and the fruit of the trees that they had left. Not a green thing remained. For neither tree nor plant of the field throughout all the land of Phoenix. <laughs> then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God, against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. To the Lord... So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. The Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt three days. They didn't see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flock and your herds remain. But Moses said, You must let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you will see my face you will die. Moses said, as you say. I will not see your face again. And the Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her daughter, every silver for silver and gold jewelry. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go to the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill." all the firstborn of the cattle. There'll be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such there's never been nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these servants shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh won't listen to you. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Father, we ask you that in your Supernatural power: you'd bless this reading of your word. Help us not to merely tinker with ideas, but to listen to you. For you are here with us, speaking, and we desperately need this word. There are many, many, many things we could talk about from these four and a half chapters. But we simply mustn't miss the main thing being said. I hope you heard it because it's voiced over and over and over. Maybe we could split it up into three parts for simplicity and clarity's sake. This story teaches us a tremendous lesson. Teaches us, number one, that God is the Lord. Number two, this God who is the Lord, his authority is absolute. And number three, this God who is the Lord, his authority is absolute. He will be known. If we put all that together, I think those three ideas really are one idea that like three strands of a cord are wrapped together to teach incredibly powerful lesson about God. God is the Lord. His authority is absolute. And He will be known. In our remaining time, I want to just do the best I can to try to explain each of those briefly. The first clause, God is the Lord. If you're from the western half of the world, which a majority of us are listening to this message, it's common that you would believe in some kind of vague spirituality And it is increasingly common, depending, especially if you're young, that you may believe there is a God, but sort of indifferent to that idea. That's called being agnostic. And there's an increasing number of people in the West who are atheistic. But it's a very different story if you're from the Eastern half of the world, as quite a few of you are and can testify to this, that isn't how you probably think. You think the opposite. There is, without any doubt, a spiritual reality. There are God, maybe even gods. For our purposes, what's important to know is that the Egyptians, for for the religious experience of Egyptians... It is the extreme opposite of Western thought. Ancient Egyptians, as I said last week, believed in at least 2,000 named deities. And so everything of consequence in life seemed to have an associated deity attached to it. And on top of that, depending on where you lived, if you lived in Mesa, then there was a god from Mesa. Lived in Gilbert, there's a god for Gilbert. If you lived in Tempe, then there were gods for Tempe. Belief in the supernatural was literally everywhere. And it involved everything in everyday life in the stuff that really mattered. Even in the halls of the government. See, Pharaoh would have believed himself to be divine. Now, it's in that context, a context so different than where we sit geographically today. But incidentally, the majority of people in the world it's not different. In that context, there was a group of Jewish slaves whose core conviction was that there is only one God. There's one God. No one would have cared that the Jews had a God they worshipped. But when they claimed exclusivity, that there's one God, then there's a real problem. If the Israelites' God would get any hearing in a polytheistic world, a world of 2,000 plus gods, then something really dramatic would have to happen. Imagine a courtroom and what's on trial is does the Lord, does one God exist? Well, then enter Exhibit A, the blood in the Nile. Enter Exhibit B, C, D. What are these plagues about? Well, they are first and foremost about the fact that God is the Lord. God, Yahweh, he is the only God. He is the Lord. In each of the plagues, God revealed himself as God by outdoing one or more of the Egyptian gods. That's what's not readily obvious to us, but is in the background of what was happening in the story. So take, for example, that first plague, the Nile turning to blood. Everybody knows about the Nile. It's still there for crying out loud. Isn't that amazing? The Egyptians thought that the Nile was the reason they existed. They believed that as the Nile brought water, then it created things and that it sustained things. And therefore it was the gift of the God of the Nile. Now I tried to figure out how to pronounce this God's name. I couldn't, couldn't find it. So if somebody knows, you're welcome to tell me afterwards. But it's spelled H-A-P-I. So we're just gonna say happy. The Nile God was the God Happy. When Happy blessed the people, the riverbanks overflowed, watering the crops, giving life to Egypt. But when the Nile flowed with blood, Happy grew. Unhappy, can't miss that one. Happy was ruined. Do you see the point? God is the Lord. God creates. God sustains. God gives. Happy is nothing. Happy doesn't exist. Happy is a figment of their imagination that they worshiped, making the the river God happy an idol. Each plague. If we had time, we could go through and I could show you how each one was a repudiation of one or more Egyptian deities. These weren't cruel, arbitrary, bizarre things. These were God knocking off false gods. And every time, the major lesson to be gleaned is exactly the same God is the Lord. There ain't another one. God is it. Each plague is a judgment, a sort of decreation of Israel's false worship. God is the Lord. There is no other. Now, I suspect most, if not every single one of us, don't think there are some 2,000 gods we owe worship who will bestow blessings or give curses based on our behavior. But that doesn't mean we share no connection to the Egyptians. Quite the opposite. Because you see, these these gods were looked to as providers. They were regarded as sources needed For life. Dispensers of goods. When we make success, finding a spouse, being entertained incessantly, getting a particular job, having a certain body shape, having a child, having a child that does a particular thing, owning a certain amount of stuff, having a certain title, getting a certain amount of pleasure. I I could literally go on and on and on 2,000 times. You see, the Egyptians worshiped that which they thought was providing them with what they needed. We are literally no different at all. We just cut out the, the middle thing, the making up a God part. When we look to anything as an ultimate thing to live for, and we expect it to provide for us, the Bible calls that worship. We are worshiping a false God. It's just not called happy. It might be called sex, or marriage, or pleasure. But at the root it is exactly the same and therefore let us hear this truth god is the lord there's not another and so when we prop something up and make it god and worship it it is not only massively offensive to god but it's hollow and empty and enslaving and awful. And always over-promises and underdelivers. It can't make good on its claim. It cannot provide what is really needed. I love the way the book of 1 John ends. Tiny little book about all the stuff of the normal Christian life saying seemingly nothing about idolatry, nothing about idol worship, false gods, and yet then it ends. It ends with little children, not in a condescending way, but in an endearing, I love you, keep Yourselves from idols. That brings us to the second lesson from these chapters. That God's authority is absolute. With every passing plague, deity after deity was undone, rendered useless and defeated. Because beloved, God has no equal. No rival, no parallel, no counterpart. He's in a class all to himself. These plagues demonstrate that. Church, do we see God in that light? Or have we domesticated him? Is your God a big God? Or is he a little small God? Is he a garnish on the side of life, sort of left over on the side for when you need him? Or is he the blazing center of everything? Make no mistake, the only God that exists is a big God. And the bigger this God is in your own recognition of him, the better off you will be. Each plague declares it so. Each act of judgment decries the folly of worshiping false gods, the stupidity of it. I know that's a hard word, but just think of this in relationship to parenting. What is the most oft-repeated word of a parent to a toddler? No, exactly. You say it a bazillion times. And then on Tuesday, you say it a bazillion times. Why? Well, because that little creature is a sinner and that little creature doesn't know what's good for him or her. And so, in love, parents put little locker things on the cabinets of your house so your child doesn't chug the draino if your toddler is reaching to put his or her hand on the broiler what do you do you you might even yell no Because you're mean? Because you're cruel? Because you're awful? Because you are domineering? No, because you love your child. You exercise authority for their good. I'm afraid a lot of parents don't get this today. It's a horrible thing for a parent not to love their child enough to say no. Friends, God is the ultimate parent. He's the Father. The Father says no. The Father exercises His authority for our good. The Father says yes, exercising His authority for our good. God's authority is absolute, and that is a wonderful thing. Because we are toddlers, Drinking the Drano. God's commands are not burdensome. They are precious gifts. Now, one really prominent way this issue is provoked in the story, in these four and a half chapters, is in this language of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And notice that it, it pointed to us three different ways that can be described. Sometimes the text said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Sometimes the text just says Pharaoh's heart was hard. And sometimes it says a God-hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, which one is it? Yes. All three. And I recognize this is confusing for many and troubling, really troubling for some of us. And so let me try to work this out with you. I read a quote a few days ago that really helped, I think, capture what's going on. It says this, the plagues reveal his, that's God's, love of obedience and his revulsion from disobedience. Think of this with me chronologically. God's word came to Pharaoh. And incidentally, God's word had been coming to Pharaoh his entire life because Through creation, God is constantly talking. He's like a teenage girl. Just always, always talking. It's wonderful. I love that about Abby. I'm being dead serious. I love it. God is always speaking through what he's made. But when I say that God's word came to Pharaoh, I'm talking in particular, about the word that came through Moses and Aaron, which was, let my people go. Pharaoh said to that, no, I won't do it. Friends, every time God says do something or don't do something and we ignore it, then there gets a little plaque around our spiritual heart. And the more you say no, 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 the harder the heart becomes. And so the Bible rightly says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He rejected God's word and he stubbornly did the opposite. And with every rejection, a little more plaque built up. And so the Bible also rightly describes him as being hard-hearted, weighed down with guilt. We might put it this way. Pharaoh was a heavy man. Now I have no idea how fat he was. I mean, he was, he was morally weighed down in the guilt of rejecting God's Word. One of the Hebrew words used to describe hard-heartedness is weight, heaviness. The Egyptians believed that after you died, your heart was taken and weighed on scales. And if your heart was heavy, if it was morally weighed down with guilt, then it would get eaten. But if your heart was light, then you'd go back up, get another wonderful shot at an even better life. God's telling us Pharaoh, your your heart dude, you are an obese chubby, hard-hearted man. heavy with moral guilt. Now, therefore, because of those realities, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Maybe you've heard the proverb, uh, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay or some derivative of it. Well, God's word shone on Pharaoh and that sun shining revealed his heart to not be malleable. He wouldn't obey. And so rather than melting the wax he had his heart himself volitionally becoming more and more and more hardened and eventually god said all right i'll give you what you want i'll harden your heart that is God's word of command, let my people go, eventually became a word of judgment. I'm giving you what you've chosen. I'm turning you over to your guilt and judging you for it. That's how these three things work together. Now, interestingly, Romans 1 describes the exact same thing using different terminology and applies it to all people. It tells us that God reveals himself in what he's made. And if we reject that knowledge of God, which everyone does, then the heart becomes hard. And if we don't respond with grace, uh, if we don't respond to the grace of God with faith and repentance in the gospel, then eventually, Romans 1 says, God Turns us over to our desires, we get what we wanted. That's the hardness of heart. Christian, one of the most important pursuits you and I will ever have that we ought to seek to cultivate every day is that we want to be waxy, not clayey. How? How do you nurture a soft heart? Let me give you four ways. Number one, listen intently. Listen intently. Make your life about hearing from God in the Scriptures. And what God says in His power, believe it because it's good and right and true. Listen intently number two obey fully whatever God says is right and true and good obey him by the power of the spirit Christian living within you say yes to God number three repent completely how did I get there well you're not going to do the second one not perfectly None of us do. So we, we listen. We say, yes, God, I want to obey. And we go through our lives then. And we obey some things. And then we don't obey other things. And when we recognize the moment, God, I've disobeyed. Stop. Whatever you're doing, repent. And then, finally, number four, rejoice or marvel Joyfully. Marvel at what? Marvel at the grace and forgiveness of God that Josh talked about. Marvel that God forgave yet again and again and again and again. How do you nurture a soft heart? I think those are some of the main ways. Listen. Obey. Repent. Rejoice. Do this together. This is part of the reason the church exists. And finally, and I'll do this very briefly, consider that last clause: "God will be known." Exodus 7:17 7, includes this phrase that "I am the Lord. Know that I am the Lord." chapter 8 verse 10 that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God chapter 8 verse 22 know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth chapter 9 verse 14 know that there is none like me in all the earth chapter 10 verse 2 that you may know that I am the Lord now you're getting hungry so I'll stop but I could go on and on and on how many times is it here it's a ton. The refrain of these chapters is God's commitment to being known. Now, friends, it's clear from beginning to end. The scriptures are resoundingly clear. God will be known. That's not a question. What is the question is will we know him as Savior now? Or will we know him as judge later? Chapter 9, verse 16 said, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Don't miss that. Even in God's just judgment against Pharaoh, God had a missional evangelistic motive. He wanted his name to be proclaimed everywhere so that people would turn to him. And what people alive in the Old Testament could only anticipate, we now can fully, more fully understand. That is that it's at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then and only then Does God knowing us no longer horrify us? And us knowing God become the greatest gift imaginable. Therein is the beauty of the gospel. The fact that all of us Egyptians deserve every single plague and then hell. But because Jesus gave his life for sinners and rose again, there is grace and mercy and new life in Him. And we can know God. That for which we exist. We you stand to me and let's pray. God, I've said a lot. Would you please use these four and a half chapters by your spirit right now to change each and every one of us. We want to know you. Help us to feel the weight of what we've discussed. In Jesus' name, amen.